Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, one of the government's most popular IT contracts hits a growth spurt and the big bet on CX coming to DHS. It's Tuesday, August 30th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. A programming note, the Daily Scoop podcast will bring you new shows all this week, then a pause for Labor Day next Monday, and back with a brand new show again next Tuesday, September 6th. The General Services Administration's Alliant 2 contract's about to get bigger. The vehicle's new ceiling will be $75 billion instead of the old top of $50 billion. Julie Dunn is principal at Monument Advocacy. She's former commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. Julie, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What does this say to you about Alliant that they're increasing it rather than pushing the gas pedal on the transition to Alliant 3? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. Good to be here. Um, well, I think uh, the the raising of the ceiling for Alliant 2 is significant for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, I, I think it's uh, in large part illustrates the success of the program, frankly. Um, and I think a lot of customers were quite pleased um, with the way the Alliant 2 team stepped up, particularly in the midst of COVID. Um, and, and you can see that in the the the, the JNA that uh, GSA did, it's, you know, 24 pages long. So they go into it a lot of detail. Um, I think the other uh, big thing that struck me, as I recall, uh, I think it was summer of 2020, STARS 3, um, 8A STARS 3 kind of started to run into that ceiling problem. Um, so, or STARS 2, sorry about that. Um, so I think this is anticipating the need. Um, we're also at the end of the fiscal year. We've also got things like, you know, at least I, I think the JNA cited six different executive orders related to cyber. Um, most significantly, I think the most recent uh, executive order on cyber, uh, the 14028. And uh, I think as they described it in the JNA, they said, you know, we're moving from incremental change to a bolder set of changes when it comes to cyber. And I think Alliant 2 and its successor will be a large part of helping agencies get there. You mentioned the success in your view of Alliant 2. Your successor at GSA, Sonny Hashmi, says, uh, according to my colleague Dave Nitschapier, Alliant 2 has surpassed our expectations at every turn. 465 task order awards exceeding $36 billion in estimated value already. Clear this ceiling increase critical to ensure consistent mission delivery for our customer agency. So it's bipartisan, Julie, that Alliant 2 has worked well. What has worked well about it and what would be wise in your view for your former colleagues and peers at GSA to incorporate into Alliant 3 to make sure that it's a success too? Yeah, um, I think it, it, it is indeed a, a agreed across the spectrum in terms of the success of this contract vehicle. And, and I recall when I was there getting briefed by uh, the Alliant team, and I was impressed with how agile the team was and how they were anticipating the needs. Um, I think another thing that's sort of obvious from the JNA is I think uh, the team really listened to the industry base um, and they cited some, you know, interesting things like, uh, you know, kind of cyber workforce, for example. I mean, we all know that's an incredible, uh, uh, important part of the federal government getting to the right place when it comes to cyber and maintaining that cyber workforce, uh, you know, uh, those folks in, in, this environment, um, particularly as the labor environment is so tight, it, and 
and even more specifically for the cyber workforce. So I, I think, um, you know, this contract vehicle being as agile as it was, particularly during COVID, um, and, it, you know, I know HHS and some of the big agency customers were really, uh, really impressed with the way we were able to deliver on this one. The increase from 50 to 75 billion, uh, Dave Nichpier writes, will also benefit small businesses, which have won more than 1.3 billion on Alliant 2 by providing more subcontracting opportunities. Is that just kind of the nature of things or is there something specific about the way Alliant 2 was constructed that makes that happen, Julie? As I recall, I think Alliant 2, part of it, it has some pretty strong um, requirements in terms of subcontracting requirements. Um, so it, it really kind of pushes that forward in terms of making sure we're delivering for the small business, that, that base, that industry base. And I think this administration um, is even more, uh, you know, with some of their DEIA uh, requirements small business and some of those set-asides are ways to think about how you're going to expand that that industry base. Dave writes, market research for the already approved Alliant 3 contract is, quote, well underway with a draft RFP slated for the first quarter of fiscal 2023. So that's sometime between September and December of this year, according to the agency. Um, what kind of market research would be happening at this point in time on a contract like this, Julie? What does GSA want to know before they start to to do the formal RFP? So I think GSA is probably, they've already started that market research yes. for sure. Um, and I think a large part of that market research is understanding what worked and didn't work with Alliant 2. Um, and I think they're probably also trying to understand how they can even better deliver for things like that, the cyber executive order. Um, Alliant 2 was pretty uh, a pretty significant tool, for example, I, rem I recall in December 2020 when Log4j hit, um, you know, GSA was able to step up and, and provide some surge capacity when it came to incident response and the like. And we worked in partnership with DHS. So I think that kind of market research, um, understanding, you know, what the you know, what, what the big goals are for the federal government when it comes to IT infrastructure, IT modernization and the like. So there, there's a lot to do in, in Alliant 3. So regarding what worked and what didn't work, we've talked about what worked already. What's your sense, if any, of what we know about what didn't work or what could work better um, putting together mm -hmm. Alliant 3? Well, I think there's always an opportunity to expand opportunities for small business, right? Um, and, and, Getting on a contract like Alliant 2, they, I think in the JNA, they, they said, you know, the, the cost of that can range anywhere from 300000 to a million. Um, it's, so trying to lessen that burden, maybe they use things like uh, what we call the 876 authority in Oasis Plus, which they're anticipating. That's the one where you compete price at the task order level as opposed to at the master contract. And, you know, because this, the master contract for Alliant 2, what was that? It you know, started in 2018. Um, so, you know, a lot has changed, for example, in the world of uh, cybersecurity and that kind of thing. The 876 authority is something else that Dave addresses in the article. That's something that GSA is considering. What does that mean? I, I read that in his piece and it wasn't, I, I've heard the term before and it's not something that sure. I have a great knowledge of. 
So it's interesting. Um, Section 876 was in an NDAA that I worked on when I was on the House Oversight Committee. Um, and it was a proposal worked on in a very bipartisan way. And it was uh, looking at how we can uh, ease the way for uh, contractors to participate in these large GWACs. So you are looking at making sure you've got highly qualified contractors with great past experience, but it's hard to project what that pricing is gonna look like at the master contract. So a better, more efficient way, at least in a lot of people's view and a way to lessen the burden for you know, entry is to make sure you're competing price at the task order when the agencies have a better sense as to very, very specific requirements. So basically the vendor is able to bid at the task order level instead of to get on the contract in the first place, knows exactly what the vendor has to provide because they know exactly what it is, what the customer agency is, uh, wants to buy. Am I, Correct. do I get it right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, I mean, they, there is competition on price at the master contract level, but it's really oftentimes it's an educated guess, but it's a guess. Um, so, and, and we, we've seen, you know, in, in the last year or so, the, the impact of inflation. Um, so contractors bidding, you know, on a task order today, it's going to look a little different from what it might've looked like at the master contract level. So it's better to get clarity on that pricing for everybody. Is there also potentially a benefit in that scenario you just laid out for a small business who will actually be able to compete on price on specific requirements where they might not be able to on at the at the the contract level because they're competing against bigger companies that have the benefit of scale but also have the benefit of and i don't mean that they do it nefariously necessarily but bid cheap just to get on the contract where the smaller company maybe can't take the chance that they might actually get on the contract and have to deliver yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, one of the arguments that, you know, when this proposal was something we were thinking about as, as, as we were thinking about putting the NDA, one of the big arguments was um, how do we expand the industrial base and make it easier for small businesses to get on some of these major contracts? Um, so and, and and we're thinking that when we're thinking particularly about, you know, emerging technology and making sure the government has those resources available. Um, like things like supply chain. I mean, some of the tools that we need today for supply chain, you know, risk assessment and that kind of thing that we weren't thinking so much about those things in 2018. And, and um, you know, now federal agencies, when they're thinking about their next task order, there's some mandates for making sure they've got a supply chain risk management program in place. You know, having that capability here is going to be very helpful. Julie Dunn, great to get your insight. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Thank you. You can read more about the Alliant 2 increase in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, Ann Newberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners for Defense Talks. It's coming September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the rest of the lineup and register through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Department of Homeland Security will launch a hiring initiative on customer experience. The chief information officer at DHS, Eric Heisen, says the new people will concentrate in three areas. He announced the initiative in this speech at Fed Talks on Wednesday. You've 
probably heard a lot about this topic lately. Uh, after a growing focus from teams across government over the last decade, in December, President Biden signed an executive order on transforming federal customer experience and service delivery to rebuild trust in government. And it's one of the three pillars of the president's management agenda, putting it front and center for every federal agency. But you might be a little surprised to hear me, as the CIO of a large law enforcement and national security agency, choosing to speak about it. It may not be apparent at first, but DHS interacts more with the American public on a daily basis than any other federal agency. From travelers moving through our land, air, and seaports, to businesses importing goods into the country, uh, to immigrants applying for benefits. Across all of these interactions, we impose 190 million hours of burden on the public every year, as measured by our information collections under the Paperwork Reduction Act. 190 million hours. A number that large can be hard to comprehend. Just seems like another fact of bureaucracy. But behind each and every one of those hours is a person who is depending on us for something. So let's zoom way in and talk about just one of them. As Goldie said, I first joined government during the Obama-Biden administration as one of the founding members of the United States Digital Service. On my second day, I got sent to DHS to work on immigration benefits processing. I had a software engineering background, and I figured that I'd be spending my time on this project uh, working on strengthening agile and DevOps practices, migrating on-prem systems to the cloud, and the like. But then one day a few weeks in, a colleague handed me a scrap of paper that she had found on the floor of a Metro train car. Uh, the, there we go. Uh, it had a bunch of I's and G's on it, followed by a series of numbers and dollar values. It wouldn't mean anything to most people. But after a little bit of time at DHS, I instantly knew what this was. Someone was tallying up the government form numbers and costs associated with it that would be required for a loved one to immigrate to the United States and ultimately get a green card. Now, maybe this person was just doodling because they found scribbling out government form numbers a welcome distraction from DC Metro at rush hour. But to me, this was a reminder that people I see every day who might even be sitting next to me on the train are depending on the federal government for some of the most important things they will ever do in their entire lives. It made me think about the digitization project that I was supporting a little differently. We were spending massive amounts of energy modernizing our technology and our infrastructure, but far less time on the process that we were digitizing. If all we accomplished was shifting this sea of government form numbers from paper to the web, the confusion that led someone to scribble this out on a metro car would still be there. Too often, our modernization and digitization efforts just take burdensome paper processes and turn them into burdensome electronic ones. I was far from the first person to have this realization about immigration forms. Back when Secretary Mayorkas was the director of US Citizenship and Immigration Services, he launched an initiative called MyUSCIS, which started to explore what would be possible 
with an immigration system designed around people, not form numbers. Hard work over many years, led by incredibly talented feds and contractors at USCIS, and supported by USDS, 18F, and many others, has resulted in real progress. Today, USCIS customers can explore their benefits to understand what forms they need to file, and then can file nearly all common forms online, even from their phones. These forms are tested with real customers and constantly improved based on that research. And USCIS has a robust customer and user experience team addressing all parts of the immigration journey. So when I returned to DHS as CIO last year, I made building a customer experience practice and culture across the department a top priority. In line with President Biden's executive order, each of our agencies is taking concrete steps to improve services. FEMA interacts with Americans when they're at some of their lowest points, having survived a disaster and looking to apply for assistance and rebuild. We are modernizing FEMA's online disaster assistance application based on a strong foundation of user research to remove redundant questions, reduce the need for survivors to interact with multiple federal agencies, and overall reduce the time it takes to apply. But it's not just about technology. Policy is equally critical. FEMA is updating their policies to make it easier for disaster survivors to prove the residency or homeownership and qualify for assistance. Through talking with their customers, FEMA realized that many of their documentation requirements uh, were, diff were overly burdensome, particularly so for some of the most underserved communities who would benefit from disaster assistance the most. So in addition to improving their technology, FEMA has updated policies to accept a wider range of documents and from a wider time period than ever before. These changes are improving customer experience and strengthening equity in disaster assistance. And so far, they've resulted in nearly 100,000 survivors receiving an additional $347 million in assistance. This serves as a model for how we're looking to improve and modernize our policies and not just our technology to strengthen customer experience. Our CX efforts are not just limited to benefits applications either. Uh, when I, they, and they extend into our law enforcement and national security mission. I'll admit that when I first talk to law enforcement and security types about customer experience, I can get a few blank stares. But improving customer experience builds trust and directly supports our security. Think about TSA. Every minute a TSA officer is spending managing a chaotic checkpoint or placating a frustrated or confused passenger is a minute they're not spending, looking out for threats and keeping us safe. When I talk about customer experience in this way, our law enforcement and security partners are the first to step up. And TSA is embracing this work wholeheartedly. They're implementing mobile driver's licenses and partnering with airlines to offer touchless experiences from curb to gate. I got to see this a few weeks ago uh, in Detroit with Delta. After opting in, I was able to check my bag, go through the TSA checkpoint, and board my flight, all with just a quick photo. My boarding pass and ID stayed in my pocket the entire way. 
And this isn't just about saving time. It's also keeping travelers and our frontline officers safer by reducing physical touch points. And like FEMA, TSA is going beyond just technology. They're rolling out new customer experience training to all officers around the country and improving their ability to respond to traveler questions on multiple channels. So today I've told you about a few of the ways DHS is changing technology, policy, and process to improve the experience for immigrants, disaster survivors, and travelers. Each of these actions will cut down on those 190 million hours of burden that we impose every year. But we're also taking steps to ensure that this goes beyond just a few good ideas and anecdotes and is institutionalized across the agency. In March, I set a target that by the middle of next year, DHS will eliminate 20 million of those 190 million hours with specific goals for each of our agencies. To get there, we're implementing new requirements. All DHS forms must use plain language, uh, not ask for information we already have, and be usability tested. We're building out new trainings and contract requirements uh, and support to support all of our agencies. And we're hiring. I'm thrilled to announce that in the coming days, we'll launch a department-wide hiring initiative to bring on hundreds of product management and customer experience professionals at all parts of DHS to turbocharge these efforts. This will be the largest customer experience hiring initiative in any federal agency. So if anything I've said today uh, resonates with you, I implore you to consider serving alongside us. Visit dhs.gov cx to learn more. Thank you. Eric Heisen, the CIO at DHS at Fed Talks on Wednesday. You can find a link to all the Fed Talk sessions in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. If you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.